So I came up with a question uh, this week, and uh, the answers as well, and everybody thought, not everybody, but you know, I kind of was made fun of for having homework in that list, but I said, I bet you there'll be a bunch of people who said homework. So whether you were like looking forward, you know, thinking back to when you used to go back to school or you're going back to school, how many of you said homework was like your top answer? Yep, yep. We had more last night with half as many people. Okay, now we know, Saturday night, much smarter people, much smarter. All right. Hey, I want to tell you about our next series that's coming up. It's called Finding Our Way Back to God. It's on the book of Esther. It's going to be eight weeks long. And uh, it's going to be an amazing series because if you go back to the story of Esther in the Bible, it will surprise you in all kinds of ways, uh, especially if you're not very familiar with it, especially if you have maybe the VeggieTales edition of it. Um, so Mike Cosper has written a book on it, and uh, he says it's, it's not very VeggieTales. It's very much Game of Thrones uh, type of book. And uh, we're going to be looking uh, specifically at how it is that the world of Esther, which was in exile, living in the Persian Empire, how living her faith and the Jews living their faith in that time, uh, very similar in many, many ways, Dissimilar in some ways, some key ways, but very, very similar to us living in exile. I know oftentimes we don't think of it in those terms, and we may pay lip service to it, but the Scripture says we are sojourners in this world. We are exiles in whatever nation that we're in, and so we're going to look at it. We also have this idea oftentimes of Esther being this, uh, this, this great woman of God, and uh, it's, it's not the case. Esther and Mordecai, the two main characters, are very much compromised in their faith. And we're going to look at some of the ways that we also uh, compromise uh, in our faith in ways that we shouldn't compromise. And we're going to be looking at how it is that Esther and Mordecai find their way back to God and how we as well have, not only have ways, but we have need to find our way back to God and walking closely with him and living the kind of life that the scripture calls us to live, which is a, a life of distinction, a life of love and distinction, a different life from everybody necessarily, uh, to some degree different from the people around us on some key, key things. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, today we're in Revelation chapter uh, 21 and 22. I said uh, Last week, I think on both services, I said we're going to be looking at 22 and 23. One of our members said, I'm going to be sitting on the front row. Told somebody else I'm going to be sitting on the front row. I've never heard a pastor preach on Revelation 23 because it doesn't exist. Uh, so it's 21 and 22. And so uh, I encourage you to turn to that in your Bibles. It's the last two chapters of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. If you have a smartphone or a tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version, so you can turn, uh, turn to that. If you're brand new with us, hopefully you got one of these green brochures that is that's new here. And on the inside, you'll see a sermon application guide from today. And so it's, a, it's an outline that you can use to take notes and stuff if that helps you. But there are also questions in there for families, and we've got our families here, except for the preschoolers. We've got our families in here with us uh, today. And we also um, have questions for reflection, and we have questions for our small groups. And the whole idea here is that we are not just disseminating information about the Bible. We could be fantastic Bible experts and be missing and completely, in terms of the Christian life, completely lost, completely far away from God. 
uh, it's not until we bring the story of God to life, to our lives, and we bring it to life in our lives, that, that we begin uh, to really see what God is about, and it's really what God wants to do uh, in our lives. Um, so today we're, we're looking at specifically at understanding God's invitation to us. God makes an invitation in Revelation chapter 22. There is a great invitation that God puts out there. We're going to see a lot of other things as well, but we're going to look at the nature of that invitation. It's kind of like the big picture that drives this, uh, this whole sermon. But before we do that, we always spend some time in prayer, a prayer of illumination, asking the Spirit to speak to us, a prayer of pastoral, a pastoral prayer for our congregation and sometimes for our world as well. So please join me in prayer. This prayer is based on Psalm 25. Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the ruler of all things. Your ways are perfect. By your Spirit, show us the right path. Point out the road for us to follow and lead us by your truth and teach us. Remind us that you are the God who saves us. Our only hope is you. You alone are God and you will have the victory. Father, I want to pray uh, for Dave and Cindy Barr, our members who are going to be going to Cuba and going to be investigating some of the opportunities for teams uh, going there, and I pray for you to watch over them and give them wisdom, and I pray for the team that they're going to be joining there. And they're going to be working with our partners in Cuba. I pray for um, uh, Los Pinos Nuevos um, denomination and the work that they are doing, gospel work throughout Cuba, and just sharing um, your great love and your grace and establishing people in the faith. I pray that you empower them and protect them each day. Father, I also want to pray for, uh, at least in this district that our, uh, our building is in, uh, kids going back to school, some have gone back already. I pray for them to have a great year in school. I pray that they will be uh, living out their faith uh, wherever they are, whether they're in a public school, private school, home school. I pray for the teachers, whether it's the teachers in the public schools, Christian schools, or parents who are homeschooling. I pray, Father, that you would empower them, the administrators. I pray for a great year. I pray for those who are living out their faith um, uh, in, in our public schools, uh, I pray that you would help them, give them wisdom to know how to do that well and how to point people towards you, be signposts of your kingdom and of your love. And um, our kids as well, that they would be those signposts as well. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Pastor Colin Smith uh, suggested the Bible story in many ways is like a pearl necklace. So if you think of a pearl necklace that is unclasped, the first pearl and the last pearl, whichever one is first and last, but the two pearls at the ends, seems far away from each other. But then when you clasp it, they're together right next to each other. And that's, that's how the Bible story is. The Bible story begins with creation. And then when we get to the very end, that's the first two chapters. When we get to the very end, to the last two chapters, it deals with new creation. It brings together the whole story. The new heavens and the new earth are created at the very end. It's a place where God's people will enjoy life in a way that always dreamed life should be, but never imagined it could be. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. It's an incredible sweep of the whole Bible story. It's important to get the sweep of the Bible story. It's important to understand. It starts with creation, 
and ends with new creation. Too often, Christians think in terms of the story beginning with failure and ending with heaven or hell. But that's not the whole story. That's not the big story of the Bible. In this conception of failure to heaven or hell, the uh, God of the Old Testament is oftentimes seen as this, this cruel and violent God. Uh, the Old Testament is oftentimes just dismissed. It's like, I don't even need to spend any time reading the Old Testament. It's kind of the idea. It's almost like a uh, good cop, bad cop type thing. The God of the Old Testament is the bad cop. And then you have the good cop. Somehow, between the Testaments, God gets a personality change. And all of a sudden he loves, and all of a sudden he cares, and he sends Jesus. And that's the picture that a lot of people have. Now, if you're at Five Oaks, if you've been here for a little while, I don't think any of you that have been here for a while have that conception, although the old conception can oftentimes be in there working its way out in all kinds of ways. But the Bible starts with creation and ends with new creation. And what we see is the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, then you get to Genesis 3 where things fall apart. And from Genesis 3 through the rest of the Bible, it's God's story of redemption. It's a rescue plan to bring back the beginning, to bring back what we had and what we're supposed to have and what we've been created for and designed for. And so uh, the God in the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament, they're the same God, a God of love and justice that's Redeeming a humanity that, frankly, doesn't deserve redeeming. And if we think we deserve redeeming, we're kind of missing the power of the story. Now, why is it so important? Why is it so important to remember that it begins with creation and ends with new creation? There's several reasons. One of them is that our faith, which is a following of Jesus, is an earthy faith. It's an earthy journey. When God creates humanity, he doesn't create us to float around and be like non-physical beings. He creates us and puts us on a physical earth, and he calls us to enjoy it. We're supposed to enjoy it. He says there's like two commands. One of them, I usually say there's one command. Don't eat from this one tree, but there's a second command. Eat from all the other trees. It's a life of enjoyment. It's not a life of retreat. Being spiritual. Being godly doesn't mean being less earthy. It doesn't mean like retreating from the world and being highly, highly spiritual. If your idea of Christianity is a retreating from the world, then you don't understand Christianity and you're doing damage to the message of the story of the gospel. The Bible is earthy. It includes food and drink and partying and working with our hands and thinking and camping and hiking and music. All those things are part of the creation of what God wants for us. And we do damage when we teach and think otherwise, when we spiritualize everything. And nothing is spiritual until we kind of divorce it from kind of the physicalness of our lives. We're created for the earth. We receive in the new creation, a new resurrection body that's going to live on a new earth. Not some kind of symbolic earth, a new, a new earth. Second reason why it's really important to understand that it goes from creation to new creation is because we will get then what, it's, what the story is about. We'll get the, the sweep of the story. We miss a lot of the story otherwise. The whole Bible is the story of God. It's the story of renewing the creation, of redeeming humanity that God is in relationship with of reconnecting, reconnecting as humans, reconnecting 
uh, not only with each other, but also with God. That is what the story of God is about. It's, it's a journey to a new creation, not a disembodied existence, kind of in the clouds, in the heavens. And one of the things when we get what creation is about, creation in Genesis 1 and 2, it forms the foundation to so much of the Bible that we're not even aware of. Uh, it forms the foundation for our sexuality. It forms our foundation for family and for relationships and friendships. It forms, the, Genesis 1 and 2 forms the foundation for work and how important work is, that God called us to work and to do it as unto him, to be productive in our lives. It calls us to relationships, that it's not good for a person to be alone. All of this, the foundation for, and then it's being worked out. The whole law in the Old Testament is a working out of trying to get back to the wisdom that God wanted to give us in the creation, in Eden. It's a working out um, in the wisdom literature, constantly getting back to what would it be like if we had not eaten from the tree of knowledge and bad? But what, if it, we had, we, what if we had communed with God and let him teach us what he wanted to teach us about living this life? It's important to get that it's creation, the new creation, thirdly because of God, the gospel is more than the plan of salvation. This is one that's really hard to kick for people who have grown up in churches like ours. When we get this idea that the gospel, we say preach the gospel, and the gospel means Jesus died for your sins and you can go to heaven. That is not the gospel. That is a small portion of the gospel. That is the plan of salvation part of the gospel. But the gospel is the whole story from creation to new creation. It's about living the life that God called us to live. It's about being in a right relationship with God so that we can live that life now and we can live that life into eternity. It's about living with the scripture and what Jesus called the kingdom of God, which is God ruling in our lives. For as much as we as Christians are oftentimes um, focused on getting people into heaven, God does not seem to be focused on getting people into heaven. There's very little in scripture about getting people into heaven. There's very little urgency about getting people into heaven. If you look at the the, the vast Jesus teaching and what he taught about more than anything else is he taught about the kingdom of God, the rule of God. He was more, much more concerned with getting the kingdom to earth than with getting people to heaven. It all starts here. And that's what he instructed us to pray. He instructed us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He talked about it all the time, and he talked about what this, this heaven-on-earth kind of life looks like, and it had very little to do with the conception, the popular conception of heaven that most of us hold in our minds. When he did talk in terms of the life beyond, which he did, he talked a lot about the life beyond, he talked about it in earthy terms. He talked about it as feasting, eating and drinking. He talked about it as a wedding feast. He talked about it in terms of community and friendship, communing with each other and with each other. That's all part of the gospel, is this part of this bigger story. And you go to the epistles. And really, unless you extract verses that the Apostle Paul, for example, you take the book of Romans and you extract verses that make up what many of us call the Romans road, okay? Nothing wrong with doing that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is the whole thing. Paul spends very little time saying, this is how you get to heaven. But he spends enormous amounts of time talking about how do you live life with God and with each other now that extends into the life to come and the life beyond. 
We think of the life beyond. We live in light of the life beyond. But we live it now. It's not all about the life beyond and getting to the life beyond. Like pray to receive Jesus so then you get your ticket, your free ticket into heaven. You will not find that anywhere in the Bible. Nothing that even sounds like it uh, in the Bible. So that's one of the other reasons it's important. The final reason is we'll better understand God's invitation. So right towards the end of the book in verse 17 of chapter 22, I'll just read it to you. It says this. We'll look at it later. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes uh, take the free gift of the water of life. It's an invitation. He's calling us to live the life of the new creation now, not sometime in the future. He's not calling us to accept Jesus so that we go into heaven, but that we receive Jesus so that we walk with him now on this earth and into eternity. To live in light of that, to live the journey now is what he's calling us to. And so the more we understand the whole big story, that we live within that story, and we live within that story now, the, the more we, you have to know what the story is. It starts with creation. It ends with new creation. Okay, so look at chapter 21 and uh, verse 1 uh, with me. Here's what it says. The Apostle John, in his vision, sees this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Okay, there's no, there's no sea, there's no ocean, there's no water. Part of the reason for that is symbolically in Scripture, the sea uh, is a place of chaos, uh, a place of death. That's how it's oftentimes symbolically. So that's, that's how he's going to describe a place where there is no chaos and there is no death. He said there's not going to be any sea. We have a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the, the, the one that maybe it's a little harder for us to get our heads around is the whole idea that we would need a new heaven. Why would we need... A new heaven. And the reason we need a new heaven is because Scripture, from beginning to end, from actually chapter 3 all the way to the end, we recognize that there is another realm of existence that God has created, and there is a spirit world, and there are spirit beings. And somewhere in the past, it's hard to, there's little clues to it in Scripture, but it's not clearly laid out, probably because it's a little bit beyond our understanding, but in that spiritual realm, there has been a rebellion that's taken place. But unlike the human rebellion, it's not a rebellion of everyone. It's a rebellion of some. And so there is the possibility and the presence of evil in the spiritual realm. That has to be eliminated. You need a new heaven where there is no more in the new heaven the possibility and the presence of evil anymore happening in, in that. So John sees this new heaven, but he also sees a new earth. And the fact that he has a new earth has a couple of implications. It's new, meaning, well, it's going to be different in many ways, like Jesus when he was given a resurrected body. It was new. All of a sudden, he could just appear places. It was different. But it was a body, and so the earth is going to be the earth. So there's going to be something similar to the earth that we have now, something familiar. It doesn't make sense to take this as being something just symbolic of some kind of spiritual existence because we know at the very beginning when God created humanity, he created us for earth. It wasn't like the earth was a secondary thing. It wasn't like earth is a bad thing. The reason why we might see something like this as being just symbolic of some kind of spiritual existence is because we haven't gotten Genesis 1 and 2 and we have a misconception 
of what God is calling us to and what Jesus taught about. So the earth is going to be very similar. Where Our destiny is not to be absorbed into God. Our destiny is not to float around in the clouds. Our destiny is to live on a new earth. We're going to be renewed. The earth is going to be renewed. I'm going to skip the next slide, all right? So we'll just go beyond that. So much the same way we're being renewed. Uh, we'll have new bodies that are not going to be subjected, or the scripture tells us, to aging, to sickness, to death. Um, we're going to have bodies that are enabled to live for God. Bodies whose desires are always for God. The joys of the new heaven and the new earth are beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. Way beyond anything we can possibly imagine. But God gives us some pictures uh, in this revelation to John. Gives us some pictures to help us get a little bit of a sense of just how glorious it's going to be. And the first picture that he gives is a picture of a city. And so look at chapter 21, verse 21. Where it says, uh, oh no, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 2. That was kind of weird, jump. Verse 2 where it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So the first picture there is a picture of a city. And at this point, when you get to this point, if you were reading through Revelation, what, one of the things that happens in those visions is um, all the... Uh, all the cities of the earth have been uh, eliminated, all the, uh, the countries. The, the earth, in a sense, has just been laid bare. And so we see this new sitting coming, city coming down, and when, when John sees it, he sees that it's Jerusalem, and he knows it's Jerusalem because he knows the skyline. So it's gonna, there's something in this vision that says, it suggests, oh, that's the skyline of Jerusalem. But aside from it being the skyline of Jerusalem, uh, it's very different from Jerusalem. It's grander, it's bigger, it's, it's, uh, it's a greater place, it's more, more glorious. For one thing, it's, it's huge. When he gives the dimensions, if you want to get a sense of how big this city that comes down is, uh, think of three quarters of the United States, of the continental United States. That's the size of what he describes. But he doesn't describe it to that size to help us understand it. He describes it by using the dimensions of how people spoke of the Roman Empire in that day. And so when he says the city, the city that comes down, this huge, vast city, he uses the dimensions. He, ah, it's about the size of the Roman Empire is basically what he's saying. That's what he's seeing. And this is the kind of thing that got Christians into all kinds of trouble uh, in the early centuries. And still today gets a lot of Christians in trouble. Because they didn't believe back then. They didn't believe that the empire was eternal. They didn't believe that the emperor was in some sense a god, or as many people, they maybe didn't believe that he was a god, but they treated him as a god, and they made sacrifices to him as a god. It was all part of the civic religion. They didn't buy into that. People were suspicious of them because they didn't buy in. They lived as exiles. They lived as refugees in their own, in their own nation. They didn't deify the emperor. They didn't look to the government to do what only God can do. They didn't believe that their savior was in politics or politics. And it got them into all kinds of trouble with people to the point of many going to death with all kinds of persecutions that happened in the early centuries that would pop up here and there. And it was easy. You always just pointed at the Christians and say, well, those people are anti, 
American. <laughs> they're they're anti-Roman Empire because they don't do everything that we do. They don't they don't they don't see the answer coming from Rome. They see the answer ultimately coming from God. Most importantly, John describes this vast city, and he describes it as a cube. Describes it as being as long and deep, or wide and deep and tall, uh, exactly the same. Now that has immense importance because um, when God had the temple built, when Solomon built a temple, there was one place that was called the Holy of Holies. It was a special place where God uh, would reside in a special way. It was a place that only the high priest could go into once a year after all kinds of preparations. And it was built in a cube, 30 feet wide, 30 feet deep, 30 feet tall. It's built in a cube. So when he sees it, there's a really important message that's being communicated. This is where God is going to reside. And this is where... This is where God is going to live. And the point is this. The old Jerusalem, it had a holy place where God would reside. But the new Jerusalem, the city, is the place where God is going to dwell and reside. Um, The whole place, this thing, three-quarters the size of the United States, but also as tall. This whole thing, this massive place is one holy of holies. It's like the most holy place of the temple. That's what's coming down from heaven. Look at, look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. You see that three different times. Twice using the word dwell. Once using just saying with. God is going to be with them. God is going to be with them. God is going to be with them. This is what this whole thing is pointing at, that God is going to live with us. We're going to have direct access, direct access to God. The separation that we experience in Genesis 3, the separation that we experience because of sin, this broken world that we live in, is going to be completely undone forever. We're going to be able to be in God's presence and live. The second picture God presents in order to get an inkling of the grandness and gloriousness of what's to come of the new heaven and the new earth is a picture of a bride. And so uh, look, at, look at verse um, 2 again, where it says, I ha- saw the holy city, the new Jeruz- Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now when the symbol of a bride is used, to speak uh, about our relationship with God, it's talking about the intimacy that we have with God. That's what it's pointing to, is that we can be intimate with God as a bride and a husband are intimate with each other. Pastor and author Colin Smith, he expands on this image, and he says, really, if you look at the book of Revelation, you could see this if you read the whole thing. The, um, it's, it's really a tale of two cities. It's one of the themes that runs through there. And the first city is represented by a prostitute. It's the this, this, this city of man, city of humanity, that is set against God, is in rebellion against God. And then you have the new Jerusalem, which is presented as a bride. That's the second woman. By the time you get towards the end of Revelation, before we get to verse chapter 21, the prostitute is in a, in a trash heap. She had been 
able to seduce people. She would have never been alone, but now she's alone and she's desolate. But God's bride is dressed in all of her beauty and is, um, is come down to earth. And the picture is clear. The picture is that all of humanity, we've always had a choice. We can, we can either be seduced by living our lives in rebellion against God, choosing our own way, making our own way, our own ethics, our own way of life, everything. We can, we can choose that and end up desolate. Or we can choose God and experience the new creation. Colin Smith puts it this way. He says, your destiny, your eternal destiny, will either be one of delight or of desolation. It will either be everlasting love or everlasting loss. There is nothing in between. And that's how the scripture presents it. There is nothing in between. So a third picture that God gives us kind of an inkling of, of its gloriousness of the new creation is a picture of a garden. Life in the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like a garden. And so turn to chapter 22 for that. And um, specifically, yeah, the first couple of verses of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So, so you've got the city and you've got a throne, but you've got a river running through uh, the city, and on each side is this tree of life. Um, it's, it's a picture of the Garden of Eden. Uh, remember in the Garden of Eden, there are two trees. The second tree is gone. The, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and bad is gone. But here we have this picture of, of a tree of life, the one that we were blocked from having after eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what we have is paradise restored. We have something like Eden, but better than Eden. And so with this paradise restored, there's more than just paradise, something that you can feel, see, and experience. There's all kinds of gifts. When God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, there were, there were gifts that he gave humanity to enjoy. And what we have in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation is we have a renewal of those gifts. We have a restoration of those gifts. And so we're going to look at just four of those gifts real quickly. So one of them is a place to call home. So in this new home, in this new garden, you have the tree of life. And the reason you only have the tree of life is because the possibility and the potential for evil has been removed. People have been given new hearts People have been pulled into a relationship with God. Our number one desire is for God. And so it is no longer, evil is no longer present or possible. In the old Eden, Adam and Eve were able, were not able to eat from the tree of life because they weren't prepared to live. God didn't want them to live forever in the state that they were in. So this is our new home, is what's being described. Second gift is um, a purpose to fulfill. Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 are given a purpose to fulfill. They're to name the animals. They're to subdue the earth. They are to uh, garden. They're to take care of the garden. Adam loses what the scripture calls his reign. He's like 
a, a king under the ultimate king. He's to live on this earth as a king, subduing the earth under God, so stewarding it for, for God. Um, but Adam loses that, and that is being restored. Now we have a new garden and a new purpose that is being restored. So look at chapter 22, verse 3, where it describes this. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. Okay, so part of being in that city is service to God. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the future that we have, just a restored purpose using the words, the, the, the description of reigning again on the earth. That means we're going to have purpose. We're going to have things to do just like Adam and Eve had things to do. It's not going to be like a perpetual um, worship service like what we experience here. It's going to be perpetual worship by serving God and living out our purpose that God has called us to. So we have a renewed purpose. We not only have a renewed purpose, third gift is partnership. And so we have companions for the journey. We live within a reconciled community. Later in chapter 21, back in chapter 21, um, John sees the gates of the city and he sees that there's 12 gates and there's people flooding in from every tribe and nation, every ethnicity, every race, every, every language is coming into and saying, this is God's family. People from every tribe and nation, this is going to be God's family. It's the family of God, our brothers and sisters. That's one of the gifts that we're going to have, companions for the journey. And then finally, the presence of God. And that's the greatest gift uh, of all. Again, look at verse, verse, um, chapter 22, verse 4 and 5. We will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or even the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, God living among us. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, there is a, a sense in which God comes and walks with them. He's not, it, the, the sense is not that he's always there. It's not very obvious. He's not like there standing next to them all the time. It's like he comes and walks with them, and it's like he's wooing them. He's developing them. He's cultivating a relationship with them. Uh, but now God is gathering a community of people whose hearts and wills have been renewed, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and who now desire God. And God comes to live with them personally in a new way. I want you to think about the very beginning of Revelation, which we didn't look at, but we talked about last week. When John gets this vision, he's an old man. Uh, if uh, traditions are correct, uh, every single one of his fellow disciples has died a martyr's death, every single one of them. He's lived to an old age. He has no idea why did God preserve me and not my brothers to the very end, but he's lived to an old age. But he's not like ending, uh, ending life in some cathedral or living in a mansion built for him by Jesus' followers of that day, like, we want you to have a really good ending, John. We want you to 
we're, we're going to take care of you to the end. He's, he's in exile. He's on an island. And he's alone. And when you're exiled in an island and you're human, there's just going to be times where you're going to go through a lot of loneliness and you're going to go through a sense of, really, this is, this is how it's going to end? I mean, I saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus looked at me from the cross and said, take care of my mother. I did that. I followed through. But this is how my life is going to end. And there almost always comes times. There's times right now. There, right now is one of those times in your life where you're feeling that way. You're feeling abandoned. You're feeling alone. You're feeling like, this isn't the life that I, that I thought I would be living. And you might be thinking that. You might be looking back and going, boy, did I make some mistakes? Why did I go in some wrong directions? Or it might be, no, it's, it's, well, there's also a lot of things that maybe were done to you. And then there's just this world that we live in that's so broken that circumstances oftentimes put us in exile on islands like Patmos. And our life just seems to have, to just be racked with pain or heartache or longing for a life that, Maybe we had it one time and we've lost, or maybe we never even been, begun to experience. But I want you to look again at Revelation 22, verse 17. All right? So I read it to you before. I want you to look at it, where it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. John hears God inviting to take from the water of life, and it's a free gift. Maybe you've never taken a drink of that water. Scripture uh, explains it this way. It says that we come into relationship with God by grace, which is a free gift, but we receive that gift. We have to receive it, like any gift. And the way we receive it is by putting our faith in God's grace and what he's done. Jesus, we're going to celebrate it in a few moments here. Jesus' body was broken for us, and his blood was shed for us. He took the penalty for our sin in our place. We receive what he did for us by putting our faith in him and what God has done through him. God is making that invitation to you. Maybe you've never received that. You receive it. You can receive it today by putting your faith in Jesus. Maybe you received it, but it hasn't taken hold in your life. You've kind of um, wanted to have it both ways. Wanted to have uh, kind of the city of man, and the you know represented by rebellion against God, a lifestyle of rebellion, while at the same time holding on to to maybe Jesus. And he's calling you to take the water, <laughs> to live the life that he's called us to live. You won't live it perfectly. And that's why part of that life is a life of confession and, and a life of growth and a life of getting support so that we can live it more and more. And a life where we let God shape us more and more from the inside out so that our lives are going from, from God's spirit rather than from that part of us that is opposed to God and still rebellion against God. 
And maybe you're in desolation right now and you just need to remember you have drunk from that water. And you can find rest in that water. And you can find hope. John found hope in that. This book ends with hope because in the end, yes, God wins. And John knows that even though his life is ending in a very inglorious way, he knows what's next. And he's living in light of that. And he calls every single one of us to live in light of that. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your invitation to come. We're, we're here today worshiping you because of that invitation. Not everyone here today has received you, but everyone is here by that invitation. I pray, pray Father, that we, would, that we would receive you, that we would receive this free gift, and that we would live in the grace that you've given us. Shape us to be who you've called us to be. Thank you. We thank you for that call. We thank you that we have a glorious future ahead. And Father, I pray for people here today who are just hurting in deep, deep, deep ways. Loss and pain and illness, job troubles, whatever it is, Father, I pray that we will look to you and we'll find our hope in you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.